everyone, welcome to our second episode this week of Exploit It, the uh, show where we talk about exploitation and cult cinema. I'm Alexis Jowski. And I also keep a sword in my umbrella. Oh, and it rains a lot. Yeah, no, not really in Southern California. I'm Kevin Daly. And this week we're talking about Kill Bill 2009. Yeah, I mean, kind of. Lady Snowblood, 1973, directed by Toshia Fujita. Though... Kill Bill is something we should probably do at some point. Oh, yeah, we probably should. Um, it gets into a little bit of the meta <laughs> exploitation, because it's a exploitation film that's an homage to exploitation films. But It, it is exploiting exploitation. exploitation. Yeah. Um, but, oh, Lady Snowblood is so good. This movie is, is like high-quality cinema. I was pretty enthralled watching it the entire time. And what's fascinating is the director, Toshio Fujita, he directed an awful lot of exploitation, like violent woman movies and a yeah. bunch of like Pinkawaiga. And then like in the middle of there, there's this Lady Snowblood, this beautiful fucking masterpiece. And then he yeah. did like gang bitches or something like that after this. It's always weird when a director makes like an actual piece of like art and then it's just like, oh, back to back to the money. Yeah. <laughs> you do, sometimes you take that paycheck. Um, this movie starring Miko Kaiji has Yuki Kashima, a.k.a. Lodi, Lady Snowblood. Second time we've seen her on yes. our show. And not the last, because we are going to delve more into them female prisoner 701 movies. And that was a good movie, too. She, she's great. Yeah. And like she did in that movie, she also sings the theme song. Yeah. So before we get into this, you can find more of our episodes at our website, exploititpodcast.com. Uh, make sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends, help get the word out, uh, give us a rating, review, uh, subscribe, give us a, a, a rather feminine snowflake emoji, I don't know. <laughs> umbrella emoji. <laughs> yeah, an umbrella. You can also join our Exploited Discord. Um, we got a Discord server called Exploited. You can find the link on our website. You can follow us on Instagram at Exploited Podcast or on Twitter at Podcast Exploit. All right. So, this movie begins with the Criterion logo. I know. That should tell you uh, what you need to know about the quality of this film. Yeah. We we, we don't see that logo much on this show. Uh, I don't think that's the first time we've seen it on the show, actually. Yeah. And there's music, snow. A baby is being born. And this very arty, like almost black and white kind of prison scene. Yeah. And we're told that it's the year 1874, a.k.a. Meiji 7. Yep. Seven years into the Meiji era. Which, okay. Very interesting period of time in Japan. One of the most important eras of Japanese history. It marked the end of their period of isolation and feudal society and the beginning of their modernization. Yeah, it's it's the functional equivalent of the Victorian era in Japan, but it is more culturally significant because it is a rapid modernization. And the reason they went through this rapid modernization is because they were not going to be colonized. They saw what the Westerners were doing with colonies. And Japan said, fuck this, we're going to modernize and join them. We're not going to be colonized. We're not going to be some fucking European colony. 
we're going to be the colon. We're going to be the colonizers. Yeah. So we're 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 going to go ham on this this fucking Western ideology and meld it with their own, which creates a very interesting blend of modernity versus tradition, and that's a thing even today that Japan interacts with regularly. It's a always kind of a, a tense point. Yeah. So it was. Huge, rapid changes in social upheaval because of that. Yeah, it's, it was crazy. The Tokugawa shogunate fell. Samurais were now a thing of the past. Yeah, the samurai class is completely gone at this point. Well, except for a few people hiding out, trying to hold on to the old ways. But yeah. officially, the samurai class has been removed. It's not all, truthfully, it's not all that dissimilar from what will happen to Russia in a few years during the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, you have those samurais and land-holding daimyos, uh, you know, rebelling. There was the Satsuma Rebellion, which is the focus of the film The Last Samurai. Which is such an unfairly maligned film, by the way. That's a really good movie, yeah. It's good. It The thing is, it, because it stars Tom Cruise, everyone thinks of it as this like white savior movie. It, it's, it's not. He does fucking nothing in the movie. He's an observer. <laughs> He literally goes there and sees the end of end of an era. Yeah, he he just a, a an observer. Yeah, it's not a white savior movie. It's him literally just seeing what happens. It's fa- It's actually a really good movie. And the big thing with this this modernization was the introduction of introduction of a democratic government. So now everyone had a voice. All the common people were just as free to pursue their goals as all the elite had been for for millennia. Yeah. Yeah, people hated that. They resisted it, and there was a lot of shit happening. And this movie delves into quite a bit of that. It's interesting, right? Like, everyone thinks, oh, I I want freedom. I want... But do we? What what is this uh, Devo song, right? You, You don't want freedom of choice. You want freedom from choice. Yeah. People, I think people for the most part are very content to go along with the status quo, whatever the status quo is. And this film does deal a lot with that that change. Um, There's a lot of ideas about holding on to the past and honoring it when the world isn't that that world anymore. Right. Um, And the fact that Yuki herself is a relic of the past. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, the Meiji Restoration... I wish they needed to have more movies set during the Meiji Restoration, the Meiji period, because it is such an interesting period of Japanese history. You should look up the, the manga with its adaptations. There's an anime and a film, Rurouni Kenshin. Okay, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, it takes place during the Meiji era. Okay, yeah, I'd probably like that. Yeah, definitely check it out. But anyway, back to this movie. We're in some sort of prison. Yep. And a bunch of women are, are helping a, a mother. Well, she's not really recovering from a rough labor. She's dying. Yeah. She's finished the labor, but um, it's not going well. Yeah. She, uh, the yeah, baby she's was not doing breach, and, you know, baby's fine, but the mom's dying. And so, since it's snowing outside, she names the baby Yuki, which means snow. And she's like, you will carry on my van- my vendetta, my poor child. You are an Asura demon. And we get credits, and now we're 20 years into the future. Well, into the present, rather. Yeah. And we get this, this young woman 
walking along in the snow with her umbrella, and she won't beautiful, get- beautiful shot here. Oh yeah, and there's this gang going by with their leader, and she just jumps up and just fucking kills them. Yep. Um, that's that's that. Lots of blood. Yeah, it's living up to its name very quickly. Yeah, she's got a, a kind of more like a long knife, but it's a sword. She has a concealed uh, sword in her umbrella. The uh, gang boss has a concealed knife in his cane. Yeah, I mean that, it was actually if you look at uh, at least in in Britain, in in England during the Victorian period, the the mirror of this period time period. If you read some of the period sources, um, sword sticks were not uncommon. They were illegal, but a lot of people carried them. Yeah. Uh, so it was fashionable, and it makes sense that it would be relatively fashionable in Japan as well during the same time period. This sword of hers, by the way, with the production end, it's made out of duraluminum. Oh! <laughs> which is like a, a copper aluminum alloy. Huh. It weighed 1.5 kilograms and just really wore out the actress's wrist. It Why was, would they make it so heavy? I don't know. So, like a real sword stick, like that, if it was a real object, the uh, concealed sword and umbrella might weigh. Well, just for context, uh, well, a bastard was- sword, hand a half sword, whatever you want to call it, uh, long sword, it weighed about about two pounds, two point two pounds. Whatever. Oh, that's not even so like eighteen hundred grams. Yeah, eighteen hundred grams, something like, something like that. Um, so this would weigh maybe eight hundred grams. I want to say. Yeah, but the, like real a real one. Yeah, the one they made, which obviously is dull. <laughs> yeah, but you can make a dull steel one that weighs eight hundred grams. Yeah, no, they made it out of duraluminum, which didn't even exist in the time period that this takes place. Well, I mean, that's it's a prop, right? That's fine, but they yeah. could still have made it out of something that wouldn't have completely worn out their actress, considering the real object would have been half the weight. So after she kills this and introduces herself as Lady Snowblood, we get the song. And does this song sound familiar? Of course. It's used like five fucking times in Kill Bill. Yeah, this this is one of Tarantino's favorite movies. Yeah. And rightfully so. And we get a training montage with young Yuki, and the song tells us that she bears the weight of karma as she walks gazing straight ahead, embracing the darkness with her umbrella. And we get chapter one, Vow of Vengeance, because this film has chapters. Yes, it does. Yeah. And much so, like much like a Kill Bill. Yeah, and we get a narrator tell us about the Meiji era. And prattle about civilization and Western thought have taken root in people's minds. Yet factions of former clans still vie for power, and greedy conglomerates abound and do dishonest as do dishonest merchants. Into this world, an Asura, a demigod, was born, Yuki. And yeah, we get um, we get her as an adult going into this impoverished village, which is quite yep. impoverished. There's a there's a man with no legs in this town. Yep. Things are shit again. Yep. Well, it, and it's it's a, this is a really rough era. Yeah. Well, and, and, and part of the Edo period was like definitely reasonably prosperous during the Edo period, but since the since this is such a chaotic period of time, 
Again, much like the... Actually, truthfully, not all that dissimilar from the end of the Sengoku period into the Edo period. This is It's just a period of, of massive upheaval. Of Japanese carpetbaggers. Yep. Which, we'll get into those. But she's looking for, like, the leader of this town, this Mr. Matsuemon. These guys are like, we'll show ya. And just this gang of dirty guys, they drag her out into a field, and then they start shouting, Pass her around! The vagina goddess has graced us with the visit! I'm like, that's quite a translation. Yeah. But of course she kicks their asses. Yeah, she, they're lucky that uh, the dude intervenes, because they all would have been bodies. Yeah. Matsuemon intervenes, and he's like, hey, this woman's pretty important. Leave her alone. Um, she killed the gangster that was tormenting this village. Yep. Which, yeah, that gangster was not part of her her, her vengeance plan. No, that was the buy-in to uh, uh, get the information she needs. Yeah. And um, so he's like, tell me, Lady Snowblood, what brings you here? So she wants help finding her three targets. Danzo Takamura, Gishiro Tsukamoto, and Okono Kitahama. Which, they're incidentally all from the same village in Shimani Prefecture where Matsuemon was born. Right, and that's why she figures he might have some strings he could pull to get some information. And he's like, well, what's your story? And she's like, do you remember the blood tax riots of 1873? Which, that was a thing. I, I researched that. Oh yeah, I wasn't familiar with it. <clears throat> the movie goes into it a little bit, but... um. Yeah, the government issued a conscription order for all young men to serve in the military for three years. Right. That's not uncommon in a lot of countries. Korea still does it. Israel still does it. But uh, Italy still does it. So much of Japan was agricultural, and you were taking away all the much-needed manual labor. Right. And right before that was an order of mandatory public schooling, so they didn't even have child labor. Additionally, people in the military were like, what, now we have to mix with all of the commoners on the same level? Right, yeah. On top of that, there was this wacky-ass conspiracy theory. Because the word that they used for conscription was like this colorful French phrase for blood tax. Imposed oh. song. So, conspiracy theories went around that the, they thought the government was actually going out there and harvesting blood. Because they used this French phrase for blood tax. That's... And the movie actually does go into the conspiracy theory. That they thought the government was actually literally going around collecting blood. So weird. Like, But, I mean, that's uneducated population is a reason the kids now have a mandatory schooling thing. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so there were riots. And then, you know, Matsuman's like, well, what does that matter? Like, were you even alive in 1873? Which she wasn't. Yep, not but, yet. But she explains that even before we enter the world, we are marked by karma. And we go into the flashback. We get the uh, the Texan voiceover describing the conscription order and everything. Yeah. And that it, the intent, that the, they describe the intent, that they needed to create a strong modern military to rival that of Europe and America. Because Japan was not going to allow itself to be colonized. And rumors abounded about men in white that killed conscripts and drained their blood. Right. So... We get Koichi Village in the Shimani Prefecture, and this this man in white with his woman in white, and they got their little boy with him, and they're going through a field. An alarm bell sounds, and people run out from the village, and they're like, Oh my god, he's wearing white! He's gonna bleed out our people! 
The fucking Illuminati is here. Yeah, lizard people have arrived. Yeah, he's wearing a, a European style white suit. Yeah, and he's like, no, no, I'm actually the new elementary school teacher. They're like, no, you're not. And so they kill him. Yeah, mercilessly kill him. Uh, They kill their child. Yep. And have that kid just like bleeding out into the river. And then they take this woman and they they rape her for days. And one of the the, the people, the bad people here, is a woman that just kind of watches and keeps encouraging. That's Okono. Yeah. And Yuki's like, you know, we go into the future. Yuki's like, that was my mom that they did this to. And I have this unbreakable vow to pursue vengeance above all else. You know, because of her mom, Sayo Kashima. Technically, there were four assailants, but um, mom took care of one of them. Yeah, the mom took care of one of them. Um, Which is how she got in jail. Because she, she caught up with one of them and waited. Well, no, she didn't. He took her with her with him. Yeah, I basically kept her as a sex slave. Kept her as a sex slave until she waited until the right moment and, and murdered the shit out of him. Yep, stabbed him many, 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 many times. Yeah. But these people, they had a scam, um, the four of them, that they would go to these villages saying, hey... You can avoid conscription if you pay us money. And so they took all this money and fled. But yeah. so now that uh, Sayo's in jail for murdering that guy and she still has to kill these other three, she intentionally sluts around, sleeps yep. with every man that passes through that prison just wow. for the intent of becoming pregnant. Whatever dick she can find, she takes. Yeah. She she says, I acted like a mad bitch in heat, is what she says. Because the only way for her to get out for vengeance is to send progeny out to complete her quest. Yeah, so she has this kid, and she's blessed or cursed this kid with a lifelong plan for vengeance. Yeah, it is interesting, right? Like, it's to know one's purpose in life is a blessing in such a way. But it's a pretty grim purpose. Yeah, and so one of the women, she's later released, and she takes the baby to, to this man who raises her with the discipline, and he, he's like, this is hard-ass Pai Mei shit. Yeah, he's, he's, he's fucking Pai Mei. Yeah, he's rolling her down the hill in a barrel and beating her, and it's a very long training montage. Yeah, we got a long montage where she's being forged and hardened. Uh, we get odd child nudity. Yes, that is an unusual scene. Yeah, where she just strips her clothes off and fights naked, and I'm like, ah, she's like ten years old. There's probably a reason for it. I, but she, she she's a, kicks his ass. Yeah. And I mean, now, she's already pretty good by that point. Yeah, and now she's grown up and on her quest for revenge, and we go into Chapter 2, Bamboo Wives and Tears of Wrath. And Matsuemo has found Banzu Takamura, the first of her targets, who we find is just a horrible alcoholic wreck, crippled with debt. Debt ridden, crippled, and having to take pharmaceutical drugs just to keep going. Yeah, he's taking drugs, and he's an alcoholic on top of that, and he's he's being cared for by his daughter, Kobue, 
Also, gambling addict. Oh yeah. He's he's in a rough place. He's got to wake up to his his morning sake. Yeah. Um, you know, and Kabue's caring for him, you know, because it's her dad, regardless. And so she she weaves and sells these bamboo wives, which I'm not. They're what the fuck are these things? Decoration. Yeah. They're, maybe they're maybe they have some sort of ceremonial significance. They're they're kind of bamboo, roughly in the shape of a woman. They kind of look like a Russian doll, but they're just bamboo. They're just little mini wicker men. Yeah, but it's not like she actually sells them. She just goes up to a cliff and tosses them into the sea. Yep. She has another job. Yeah. Um, before we get that, though, she happens to meet Yuki. And she's really, really nice to Yuki. Yep. You know, she's like, oh, hey, here, have this hairpin I made. Um, my name is Kabue Takemura. You know, my father's Bonzo. And Yuki's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, Kabue actually is a sex worker for the yes. mob, the local mob, basically. Right. Um, she sells her body, and they're, they're like, okay, you're going to go sleep with this dude today. And <clears throat> that mob has sent guys over to Bonzo's house to collect some debts. And he's like, oh, my daughter is out selling her wares, which they all get a chuckle at. I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> he's not wrong. They're like, um... She's not selling those bamboo wives, but she brings home money. Uh, yeah, she's sleeping with people to pay for your booze and medicine, which, of course, he feels terrible about. Right. So Yuki is now working at the gambling house as, like, a dealer, which, it's weird gambling. Um, and yeah. And Bonzo shows up to gamble, and he's, of course, losing all of his money, and then he decides to cheat and gets caught. He's got, like, a card that has, like, you can change the value of it. Which, you can tell it's not a very good game when it's uh, that easy to manipulate it. Yeah, but, but they catch him cheating. And they're like, okay, Bonzo, we're gonna torture and kill you now. Yeah, they don't like to be cheated. Yeah, and Yuki runs in, she's like, no, 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 I was the dealer. It's my fault, don't do this to him. And the boss is like, okay, well, we'll, we'll let him go for now. And, um, you know, just don't ever show your face again. You know, Yuki saves his life because she wants to be the one to kill him. That's the right. important thing. She has to do the murder for the vengeance to really matter, you know? Right. Just him dying isn't good enough. Yeah. And before she goes to have her her meeting with Bonzo, she meets Kobue one more time. Yeah. And she's like, hey... If anything should ever happen, come to Tokyo, look me up, you can stay with me. Kabu's like, oh no, I just can't leave my dad, but thank you anyway. And that's when uh, Yuki goes to meet Bonzo and is like, hey, I have unfinished business. I've been sent to escort you to where you truly belong. Come, it's time to embark on your final journey. And she explains her purpose, and Bonzo's like, oh no, spare me, I didn't want to do it, they made me. Which, yeah, likely excuse. Yeah. It's kind of tragic because he's different. Yeah. Life has been not kind to him. Does not matter to Yuki. She screams an eye for an eye and slices him and there's blood everywhere. Yep. The narrator tells us that uh, everything is transitory, bound by the laws of life and death. 
with one of her enemies slain, now is the break of dawn. And she, yeah. she drags that dead body up to the top of a cliff and throws it into the sea. He gets a relatively clean death, all things considered. Yeah. I don't think he, he minded, really. Yeah, that's the that's the thing I I I, I kind of got from this. <clears throat> this is almost like a exception, you know, accepting penance sort of thing. He, I mean, he he tries, but it's I don't think he cared that much. I think uh, I think life had punished him plenty at that point. Yeah. So now we're into chapter three: blood-soaked umbrella, grief scattered like flowers. So poetic these chapter titles. Oh yeah. Yuki's at a cemetery, incredibly upset to learn that Kishiro has died. Yeah, she is very pissed. She fucking swings her sword at the grave, breaks all the flowers. She goes back to the poor village, and she's like, Oh god, if only I'd started earlier. Learns that Kishiro died in a shipwreck on his way to America. Um, apparently he was involved in some shady opium dealings. He was, yeah, smuggling some opium. And they're like, but be strong, you know, you still gotta go kill Okano. True. And so she goes into Tokyo, and she meets this journalist who wants to know why she defaced the tombstone. This journalist is Rurei Ashio. He publishes a brag called The People's Courier, and he wants whatever story she's got. And she doesn't give it, but he writes it anyway, and he writes the manga Lady Snowblood. Right. And we get like scenes from it and stuff, and it's kind of cool. Yeah, we we get images from the manga, and he's he's narrating it. And um, Yuki goes to visit her old mentor, the one that raised her. Yeah, who's like, oh yeah, I told that guy the whole story. Um, because this is gonna be bait to lure out Okona. Yeah, because she's she's not being particularly forthcoming with her existence, but if she feels like <laughs> there's enough of a threat, you know, come to her first. Yeah. And he cautions her about rushing into things. Like, don't rush into it, just put this bait out, bring her out. And then we get the fucking badass music as the police are marching around. Yeah. Uh, Kabue is at Rurei's house, you know, trying to like, hey, please tell me this Lady Snowblood thing is fiction. And he's like, no, it's not. And she goes, so Yuki did kill my dad after all. Yeah. I must get my own vengeance now. Right, there's definitely a theme of vengeance begetting vengeance, which is also shared with Kill, another another parallel with Kill Bill, where that those movies are definitely about the vicious, never-ending cycle of vengeance. Yeah. And so the police show up to talk to, to Ashio, and they're like, your Lady Snowblood story is realistic, it's got people confused and outraged, you're under arrest. We're taking you to headquarters. Um... And that's when Kabue Takimura goes to talk to another friend of Yuki's and is like, hey, Rurei Ishiwa was arrested and taken to headquarters. I didn't realize that there was a police station in the Kagetsu restaurant. <laughs> you know, so basically she says Okono kidnapped this guy. Right. And that's that's what happened. Okono's there with these police officers beating the fucking shit out of him, asking where's Snowblood. And... You know, he's like, aha, you revealed yourself. You're going to die now, Okono. Yeah, pretty much. Because Yuki shows up right away and, well, she kills all of the police officers. Yep, they get straight wrecked. Well, Okono is 
is terrified and passionately praying. She gets wounded, but she uh, bamps off. Yeah. Um, when Yuki goes to fight Okono, Okono has a gun, and she just starts blasting. Yep. So anyway, I started blasting. It's a revolver, because remember, this is late 1800s. 1897 yeah. or so, I want to say. Well, let's so, see. 1873 was when she was born, and she's 20 so years old. 93. 1893. Yeah. So the the revolver, very common weapon at this time. It is. Um, a modern weapon. It, it, it kind of counters Yuki being a relic of the past. Right, because she's still... She uses no firearms. She uses no ranged weapons at all in this movie. Well, no, she throws her sand bomb Whoa. hairpin. Oh, that's true. She does have the... The 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 ninja bomb. The ninja bomb she throws down, it stuns the police, and so she runs in and kills them all, but Okono has gotten away, and so they pursue her because, you know, Ashio is totally her sidekick now. Yep. And they run in to discover Yep, Okono has committed suicide. She hanged herself. That bitch. Yeah, she took the coward's way out. But Yuki cuts her fucking whole body in half. Yeah, it was that was impressive. Just swings her sword, cuts the body in half, and just blood all over the place. I think she's satisfied enough because she forced her to kill kill herself, and then she got to cut her in half. She's like, close enough. Um, I saw notes for the movie that they're like she can hear her heartbeat, and that's why she does that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I didn't quite catch. Her hearing the heartbeat, it seemed more like rage. Yeah. But she never brings it up that she's disappointed, so assuming whatever it was that happened was good enough. Yeah. A curtain descends on this act, literally. Yes. A curtain comes down, and it's like, end scene. And we get uh, the aborted chapter four. We see Ruray write chapter four. So this, I guess, is like chapter 3.9. Yes. This scene here, where Rurei gets his visitor, um, and it's it's Gishiro, who had yep. faked his own death. You know, and now he's making a killing in the arms trade. He's a gunrunner, and a gunrunner that has ties to all levels of government. Yeah, and he's making a killing um, during the Meiji era here. Both literally and figuratively. And he's trying to get Rurei into his uh, business, who he declines. And that's when Yuki comes in and he's like, hey, hey, Gishiro's alive. He faked his own death. I'm going to help you kill him because Gishiro Takemoto is my father. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, holy shit. And the real chapter four begins. Chapter 4, The Pleasure Palace, final scene of Carnage. And, oh, this is fucking awesome from here on out. Um, There's so many levels to the, these coming scenes. She goes to the Rokumikin Charity Ball, which is unbelievably European. Right. Like, you wouldn't even think this is a Japanese film. It's playing very recognizable classical music and ballet. People are speaking English. There are, in fact, dignitaries from all sorts of European countries. Yeah, and Yuki is walking around in her, um... But Yuki doesn't know what to make. She's, like, in there confused, like, what the fuck? What What did I just walk into? 
what is this this strange world? And she totally stands out because she's the only person dressed in Japanese clothing. Which is interesting because not that she knew her father, but her father wore European clothing. Yeah. Uh, she happens to see Gashiro escape through a secret door. And she chases after him, goes into this room, fights this, this guy and cuts his hands off. But it's, it's a decoy. It's a dude in a Gishori mask. So she smashes the mirror, you know, and, and then chases after him. And we get this beautiful fucking scene where they're in the main ballroom, and but they're, like, above the dance floor. Right. Uh-huh. And Yuki's on one side, Ryo is on the other side with Gishiro, and Gishiro's got a gun. But then there's this chandelier with the John Woo birds on it. Yes, that's exactly. That was my first thought. I'm like, ah, is this where you got it, John Woo? Yeah, and they're sitting on that that chandelier cooing. We hear the coo, coo. And then uh, we get, like, dueling voiceovers. Cause she's, yeah, like they're communicating telepathically with each other. She's like, Shiro, I'm going to kill you. It's all I thought about for 20 years. And he's thinking, come and get me, bitch. And he starts shooting at Ryu, and the party's getting disrupted. And Yuki does this amazing stunt where she jumps on the chandelier and flies across the ballroom and to kill... Carol flings her way across the... <laughs> yeah. And she realizes that Rurei's... He's, he's dead. He's been shot, like, three times. Yep. So she stabs right through him to kill Gashiro. And then she's like, an eye for an eye, and cuts his throat open and throws him into the crowd. Yep. But he does get a shot off, and so she's stumbling outside in the snow bleeding. Beautiful shot, though. Yeah, which uh, Tarantino would mirror at the end of Kill Bill Volume 1. Yep, and as she's stumbling through the snow, Kabue runs up and fucking stabs her. And, uh, Yuki kind of realizes, yeah, I, I had that coming. This is the cycle of vengeance. Yeah. And she collapses into the snow, and she screams, and, uh, and that's it. Now, a, a good story would have ended here that she's dead. Right. But there's a sequel. Yeah, and apparently she lives, and I, I don't like it. Yeah, I don't either. I could ignore that last, like, two seconds of shot. I like, because, I mean, again, what was her purpose in life? Yeah, she has served that purpose. Now, you didn't mention earlier, like, what are you going to do with your life when this is done? And she's like, I I, I, I don't know. I guess I just, I, I guess I don't live anymore. I don't know. Because, I mean, that's that's a theme in, in revenge movies, right? Sometimes... Once your vengeance is done, that's that's it. That's you got nothing left to live for. And so I think it was appropriate. Plus, you know, she was dying anyway, and then the other girl got to get her revenge, even though functionally would not have mattered. Yeah. So beautiful movie. I think one of the best we've done on this show. Yeah, it's it's a great movie. The ending was a, a slight mark against it, but you can pretend there there's no sequels. That's why I've never seen the sequel. I just don't see there being a point. Like, the movie told the story it needed to tell. Yeah, she's a cool character, and the actress is awesome, and and all that stuff, but sometimes you don't need sequels. Yep. Like, imagine if there was a There Will Be Blood 2. 
Oh, God, no. I mean, look, Daniel Plainview is maybe my fa- favorite character in movie history, but I, I don't need a sequel to that movie. His his deaf son takes over the business and declares vengeance on Christianity. Yes, that, that sounds like the plot that they would do for a sequel to that movie. Even though he hated his dad, though. I don't know. But it doesn't, I mean, doesn't matter sometimes. So, yeah, this movie is just a absolute, you know, 6 a.m., you know. To get you going for the day. Yeah, best coffee. It's, it's a beautiful film that I is underrated somehow. I think it, I think it's one of those films that needs to be watched and respected more because it is actually a work of art. So far it's this a, year, it's been nothing but bangers. Yeah. I mean, we've watched good movies. We haven't luckily have not had any, uh, super van level shenanigans as of now. There's no super vans yet, but yep, I promise you we'll get through the super van franchise. Oh God, no. no, I don't think there's a franchise. In fact, there's no van exploitation in our schedule. After Supervan, I was like, we're never watching vans again. Yeah. <sighs> like, we mentioned, like, ten other van movies. What, there are other van movies. But... We ain't fucking watching them. Next week is Giallo. Indeed. Yes. And we're doing uh, Dari Argento's film, John Saxon Wears a Nice Hat. Oh. Also known as Tenebrae. Shadow, I believe. Yeah, actually, that is what it means. Um, you're, you're gonna love that one. It's a good movie. I mean, I like John Saxon, and I like uh, Jello, so. Yeah. And and I like nice hats. Oh, John Saxon has the best hat. He he, my daddy. <laughs> is it is it better than than the the John Saxon lookalike in in Cave Dwellers? Oh, definitely. <laughs> And a far better hat. Uh, but yeah, we're doing Tenebrae and another one. Which, from the era, we're not doing uh, the modern Giallo like we did last time. Uh, we're watching another Giallo from that era. So it'll be a fun week of Italian horror mystery. I don't have any other way to describe Giallo films. Yep. That's, that's basically what it is. Yeah, cross noir with like slasher movies and that's pretty much Giallo. So we will catch you next week for Giallo and Tenebrae and Daddy John Saxon's nice hat. Yep. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night.